0: Well, we are in Chapter 11 of Mark. We have made it to the Passion Week. Passion means suffering. So as we study this, uh, as we study the Passion Week, we can see the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And we have all heard of the movie, right? The Passion of Christ. It it shows the suffering of Jesus. So Jesus has come to town. He's ushering in the kingdom of God. He did not ride in on a white horse declaring victory. He humbled himself and rode in on a donkey. And and the people were rejoicing. Hosanna, they shouted. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. There was a buzz going around town out there. The kingdom is coming to town. The people were excited. The people were waiting to see what Jesus would do This is the moment. I told you last week, this is the moment that the Jewish nation had been waiting on for thousands of years. The Messiah was coming to town, a new ruler, a descendant of the king David. He will be ushering in the kingdom of God. We saw last week that Jesus after riding into town, the next day he goes he goes to the temple. And he's standing in that Gentile court. We we pictured what was going on there and how Jesus felt. You know, this was the place where all nations could come. This was a place that was known by the world that anyone who wanted to know about the God of Israel could come in and learn. It was a place that anyone who believed in the one true living God, the God of Israel, could come in and worship him. But it was not as welcoming as it should be, to say the least, or as it should have been. And that's why when Jesus came to town, he went directly to his father's house. Jesus was concerned about the temple. The activities that were being carried on inside of the walls stressed him. The temple was no longer a place of worship, it was no longer a place of prayer. The temple was no longer a place where people from all nations could come and pray. So Jesus comes to town. He enters the temple, and he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturns the table of the money changers. He throws over the seats of the ones who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching, and he was teaching them and saying, "It is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And we looked at the heart of Christ as he stood in there. This is where the people in that day and us today can see the righteous anger of our Lord Jesus Christ. Righteous anger. Jesus revealed his righteous anger because the religious establishment had turned God's house of worship into a place of exhortation. Extro- and by doing so, They had created a barrier to the Gentiles, a barrier to the world, a barrier for the ones who wanted to come and know God. Jesus came to town. He declared that the kingdom of God was at hand, and he began to take down the barriers that man had set up to keep the nations from God. Listen, we just read that Jesus did not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple court. What Jesus was doing here, he was actually enforcing one of the Talmud Talmud, uh, rules. There was a rule set in place for that outer court that said that no one, as we read the text, he says that he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. See, they they didn't want anyone to use the court of the Gentiles as a thoroughfare or as a shortcut between the city and the Mount, Mount of Olives. So from the beginning, this courtyard had its rules set in place to protect it. Know this, because many don't. The temple was not the sole property of Israel, as many believed, but a witness to the nation. The temple was a place where anyone who loves the name of the Lord may come and worship. You know, Jesus was quoting Isaiah 56 when he said that his house was a house of prayer for all nations. If you go back and read that, read that chapter, you will see how God was providing a way for all Gentiles, all foreigners, any person to come to him. From the beginning, God has always been a God of all the people, not just Israel. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about this Marconian sandwich. We we have the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus goes into the temple and clears it out. And then Mark takes us back to the fig tree where we see it is dead to the root. You know, a few important points to make about this fig tree as we roll into the next section of Scripture. You know, Jesus went to the fig tree to get something to eat. Even though it was not the season for ripe figs, the the tree was full of leaves, which meant that it should have some immature fruit that was edible. But when Jesus goes up to the tree, we saw that he didn't find anything that was edible. And so he cursed the tree, and he said, No one will ever eat fruit from this tree again. And I made the point that Jesus' curse did not make the tree barren of figs. The tree was already like that. You see, the cursing just sealed the way the tree had already been. And we have to keep that in mind as we see that the same curse is on the temple and the religious establishment. Watch this, as Jesus had entered uh, Jerusalem that previous day, remember what he did. He walked in, he looked around, and he left. He did not see what he should have seen. He was expecting the religious leaders feeding spiritual fruit to the hungry pilgrims. Thousands had come to the Passover celebration To meet God, in a sense. It was there at the temple that one could have asked, you know, why do you sacrifice animals? And they should have learned that it shows that a payment for sin has to be made. They should have learned that the wages of sin is death. They should should have been told about the promised one to come, the Messiah, the one who would pay the debt that we cannot pay for our sins. The people came to the temple expecting to be fed, but they only found disappointment. The religious leaders who were ordained or created to to feed them the good things of God were just like the fig tree. They were full of early leaves. They looked like they were full of fruit, but in fact they were fruitless. Instead of providing nourishment for the lost soul, they were taking advantage of the people and sending them away hungry. Jesus was hungry, and he went to the fig tree expecting to find something to eat. Disappointed, Jesus was left hungry by the fruitless fig tree. The pilgrims came to the temple spiritually hungry and looking to be fed. Disappointed, they left hungry by the fruitless system. And the scripture tells us that the disciples heard this. They, they heard the cursing of the, of the cursing. The cursing of the that, that wouldn't be an innocent tree, would it? That's the innocent tree we were talking about last week. He's not so innocent. <laughs> Shame on that tree. They heard the, <laughs> the cursing of the fruitless fig tree. Glad that's all they heard. They heard this, and, and Jesus made sure they heard that, You know, I I actually did that as I went through this text. I said, make sure you don't do that when you get up there. (laughs) Make sure you don't do that. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. (laughs) Listen, Jesus was training them, okay? He was preparing them for the days to come, and they needed to understand this truth. What was the purpose of the temple? It was a place that the people should be able to come to and be fed the word of God. Yes, it it, it had the whole sacrificial system going on. All this stuff was going on. But it should have been a place that would tell why and point everyone to the one to come. Why do you do the sacrifices? It was a place to feed the ones who are hungry. So Jesus uses this time to teach and prepare his disciples to go out and proclaim. Listen, they are going to go out and proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, the disciples, they are the ones who will soon be sent out to what? Start the church. And they need to know what the purpose of the church will be. Just like the temple had a purpose, the church will have a purpose. The church is to be a place where people can come to be fed and be fed on the spiritual food that God provides. If the church can get this one point down, the rest of it will just roll. Write this verse in your margins beside the temple there. Listen to what Jesus tells Peter to do as he's commissioning him to go and set up the church of God. John 21:15. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he has said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything you know. You, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What is the number one thing the church is to do? Feed God's sheep. Above all things, Feed the flock the spiritual food that God has provided. How is that done? How do we do that? Preach the word. This is how the flock is feeding on the good things of God. What was the, what, how did Paul challenge Timothy when he sent him out? 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Write that one in there too. He said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, don't miss that, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reproof, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. How does Timothy fulfill his ministry? He feeds the flock by preaching the word, in season and out of season. This is how the church is to be fruitful, provide spiritual food for the flock in season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not popular. That's why we here at Living Hope, we make sure we preach the word. We make sure the flock hears the scriptures. We make sure you hear sound doctrine. Doctrine. We make sure you are equipped in the truth because it is the truth, it is the word of God that will carry you through. It is the word that is the rock-solid foundation that one needs to live a life that glorifies God. Young people, I see you. I preach to you all the time. You hear me say this. You may go off to college one day. You may move away. Wherever God leads you, make sure you find a church that preaches the word. Make sure. There are churches that do a lot of stuff to stir the emotions, to tickle the ears, to feed the flesh. I don't care whatever else they do. You make sure they are preaching the word. None of that other stuff's important. What is important is that you are being fed the truth. What is important is that if you are able to read about the cursing of the fig tree and be able to know what Jesus was doing and why. You know this passage. You've been equipped because it has been preached to you. You know that the curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment in the temple. When you read this text, you remember that neither the tree nor the leaders in the temple produce fruit. You now know that when Jesus brought in the kingdom, things were changing. You know that after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there is no need for the temple or the sacrificial system. You know it. You've been taught it. You know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know that if you put your trust in the shed blood of Jesus, Jesus that you will have eternal life with him forever and ever. You know it. You have heard it. Amen? The teaching of the truth is what will get you through life. That is what, that is, what is, is, is important. So if you go somewhere, if you go somewhere else and they're not teaching the word, Go somewhere else. Don't sit under anything there where, don't sit under anyone who's not teaching the word. The church is to be fruitful by feeding the flock the word of God. The disciples in that day needed to know that truth because they, was going, they were going to start the church. Jesus is training and equipping his disciples for the things to come equipping them to go and tell the world about the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus takes this lesson of the fig tree to teach them about faith. They're going to need a lot of faith to do what they're going to do. Verse 20, chapter 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away in its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. Look. The fig tree that you cursed is wither- has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says it is mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. And who does not doubt in his heart, But believes that what he says will come to pass, It will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, And it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So the next morning, the disciples notices noticed that the tree was dead. Peter shouts out, hey, hey, rabbi, look, you know, the tree's dead. Instead of saying anything about the tree, Jesus says, have faith in God. Thought it was kind of odd. Jesus, Peter's like, hey, the tree over here. And he's like. Have faith in God. They're in that state of confusion again, I'm sure. But Jesus is moving them into another uh, to another teaching point. They need to know about faith. Think about this. They they have had God with them for over three and a half years. They have not had to worry about too much. They, they just have to worry about taking in everything that Christ has been teaching them. You know how my mind wanders. I was wondering about their prayers. You know, they start off, dear Lord, Jesus over, yes. You know? I wonder how it was praying around Jesus. You know, right? you can get an answer right then. Just wondering. Thank you, God. You're welcome. But, but for three years, they have been taking it all in. Now, they're going to have to give it out. Now, they're going to have to teach others what they now know. And they are going to have to have faith that, that they are doing. Faith in what they are doing is what God has called them to do. Their, their faith is, is going to have to be brought up another notch now because Christ is not going to be with them much longer. And, and listen, Jesus is not teaching on saving faith here. He's not teaching, you know, that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That, that's not what he's talking about here. Here, here. here he's teaching his disciples to have faith in God as they go proclaim what Christ has taught them for the last three years. Think about the challenge set before these men. The teaching of Jesus does, does not line up with the world. We know that, right? So it will take a lot of faith to even go out to go to the next day as they go proclaiming this truth that the world rejects. These men will be instruments by which Israel is transformed. This is a huge calling. They will be leaders of a big change in the world. And as we have seen in our studies of Mark, with the coming of the kingdom, things are changing. With the coming of the kingdom, remember, the temple is no longer needed and it will be destroyed in a short while. The people of God are now the temple of God and these men, his disciples, will be leading in that change and explaining that to everyone. They didn't know at this moment and did not fully understand at this time. But they were going to be the new caretakers of God's people. So their faith in God needed to be incredibly strong. And it was their faith in God that gave them the strength they needed. To get through all the trials and tribulation that they faced for the sake of the gospel. When, when Jesus says have faith in God. He means constantly constantly be trusting God. It means to live in an attitude of dependence on Him. Have faith in God at all times. There is a good self-examination question. Do I live in an attitude of dependence on God at all times? Or do I live with the attitude of I got this, God, and I'll call you when I need you. Think about how much stress that we would not have if we just have faith in God and consistently trusting God and know that we know that he is in control. It's easy to say. It is. (coughs) Tougher to do, but think about it. Think about how much stress would disappear if we would let God take control instead of us trying to control everything. I'm sitting there thinking about the disciples, thinking about all that they went through for the sake of the gospel. And I wonder how many times in their life did they say, well, God knew this was going to happen. God's got this. You know what I'm saying? They come to get, hey, Peter, we're here to arrest you. We're going to beat you. We're going to keep you in prison. Peter says, God knew this. I trust in him to get me through. We can s- see this with Paul. He's in prison, a cold, dark cave. He's chained to the wall. What is he doing? He's singing hymns. You can only do this if you are constantly trusting God. You could only do this if you have learned to live in an attitude of dependence on him and know that he's in control. And this is how the disciples had to learn to live. They had to live with an attitude of fully trusting God in all things. It's time for the disciples to understand that Jesus is not the object of their faith. Not the temple. Nor should their faith rest in the kingdom they hoped Jesus would set up. Their faith cannot be in in obeying the Jewish laws. Nor their positions as, as Jesus' disciples. Their faith should rest in God alone. They have to choose to fully put their faith in Jesus. And we know they did. Great warriors with great faith. Now, the text that we have here, I told you we were going to talk about it this week, <clears throat> has been taken out of context many times. It's been used to preach a false gospel. It's been used to advance man's selfish agenda. It's been used to judge people's salvation, all which are wrong. So let's walk through what Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says to them, truly, verse 23, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. and and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. All right, so like I say, this, this text is used out of context many times. I want you to take a moment, and I want you to look back, all the way back to when Jesus made this statement. And then I want you to count forward how many mountains that have been thrown into the sea by godly people who have not doubted, who have faith. I came up with zero. I don't know how many of y'all came up with. Zero. So even though many have challenged people's faith over the years with this verse, even though many has used this verse in the name it and claim it movement, It does not mean that you can go around and throw mountains in the sea because you have such awesome faith. Think about this. If there was one guy who could do this, you think he'd have a pride problem? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Throw that mountain into the sea, step back. Man, if y'all had as much faith as I do, you could do that sinful man, but think about that. God is not saying that you can move mountains if you have enough faith. So what is Jesus teaching his disciples? What is he telling them? You have to trust in Jesus despite everything to the contrary and to expect from him what cannot be expected from anything else in the world. Expect from him what cannot be expected from anything else in the world. The disciples are going to have to have that faith in Christ that could move a mountain, you see. They, they need to know and understand that they will be able to do what God has called them to do by the power, listen, of a faithful prayer, a faithful prayer without doubting. What Jesus is saying is that in their prayers to God, they must believe without doubting. That means without wavering in their confidence in God. Never wavering in their confidence with God. Jesus is telling his disciples, you need to be endlessly praying without doubt, without doubting as you face mountains of opposition to the gospel message that they were told to proclaim. There it is right there. Pray without doubting as you face mountains of opposition to the gospel message that they were told to proclaim. They are going to be the ones who would be the mouthpiece for the advancement of God's kingdom. They will need to be praying without ceasing and never doubting if God is with them or not. You know, we had the privilege of Uh, of uh, having the rest of the New Testament. And, And we could see the opposition that these men faced, story after story. And the good news is we could see they got it. They marched on. They prayed on. They proclaimed on until they heard those precious words, well done, my good and faithful servant." They will face mountains of opposition. So Jesus gives them comfort when he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Another text taken out of context all the time. Sinful man uses this text over and over again to try to fulfill their fleshly desires. When people use this verse to claim all this worldly stuff, you know, if I just pray it, you know, I get it, you know, it just shows the selfishness of their heart. It reveals where they stand. It shows that they do not have the mind of Christ. Now, think about this for a moment. <clears throat> in context, where this text is, when Jesus told his disciples, you know, hey, whatever you ask in prayer, believe it, you receive it, it's yours. You know, he's telling his disciples this. Do you think their first thought was awesome? I'm going to get me some new sandals. I'm going to get a new eno. I'm going to have so much bling. Everyone, everyone going to wish they were me. Do you think that was their thought? No. Not at all. But that's what we think as we hear, read a text like this. That's not at all the way they were thinking. Maybe Judas. I don't know. You know, look, they are on a mission from God. They will be focused on how to carry out this mission, how to proclaim the truths that they have been taught. They, they have left everything for the sake of the gospel. So they are not in the mindset of you get a new camel and you get a new camel, you know, Think about what's going on here in the text. Their heart and our heart should be fully focused on the advancement of the kingdom, and our prayers should reflect that. When we come to the realization that we are on a mission from God, all of us, and not on a mission to better our lifestyles and collect toys and then die, then our prayers will reflect that. They surely will. This verse was not a guarantee that the disciples would get anything they wanted by simply asking Jesus and believing. We know this because we know the whole counsel of God. You hear me say that all the time. God does not grant, listen, God does not grant requests that will hurt people. We know that. He does not answer prayers that will violate his own nature or will. Listen, our prayers, our requests must be in harmony with the principles of God's kingdom. And watch this. The stronger our faith, the stronger our faith, the more likely our prayers will be in union with Christ and in line with God's will. The more we know about God, the stronger our faith is, the more our prayers will line up with God's will. And when that happens, then God will gladly give us what we ask. Short lesson on prayer before we walk away from this. Prayer must be in the will of God, 1 John 5, 14. And the one praying must be abiding in the love of God, John 15, 7. Prayer is not an emergency measure that we turn to when we have a a, a problem. Real prayer is a part of our constant communion with God and worship of God. You must be a believer for prayers to be heard, except for one. The only prayer that a non-believer prays and God hears is the sinner's prayer asking for forgiveness and putting their trust in Jesus for their salvation. That's the prayer he's waiting to hear. You must not be holding a grudge against another person. You must not pray with selfish motives. Your request must be for the good of God's kingdom. Your request must be in line with God's will and be accepting of whatever that will might be. You must have faith in God and not the object of your request. Jesus prayed in Mark 14, 36, and going a little farther, he fell down on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. This is just before the cross. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus prayed with his heart He prayed without doubting. He trusted God knew best, and he submitted to God's will. Jesus prayed with God's interest in mind. When we pray, we should express our desires, sure. God knows our heart, but we should want his will above ours. These disciples needed to have faith that can move a mountain, they needed to fully trust without doubt that God would give them everything they needed to carry out the mission set before them. He gives them one more instruction. Verse 25, And whenever, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now this verse is not in the earliest manuscripts. They say that it was inserted by the ones who were m- making the copies. But it sure does go right with our text today here. If you want to put on the mind of Christ, if you want to pray like Christ and be thinking about his mission, then forgiveness would surely bring you to that point. Jesus is hanging on a cross, beat beyond recognition, abuse, mock, spit on, and he says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Forgiveness is key. These disciples will have to put on the mind of Christ. They will have to forgive in order to be able to carry out this mission. They will have to know that through prayer they will have everything they need to carry out this mission. They will have to have faith that will move a mountain to get them to the end. Jesus is equipping his disciples to go and proclaim that the kingdom is is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is equipping them because we know that he's going to believe in them very soon. He wanted them to have everything they needed to be able to do what God has called them to do. That's the heart of our Savior. So, you know, as I sat there, as I ended this sermon, and I sat there and meditated on this text for a while, and as I thought about it, I said, what is an example of faith that can move a mountain? You know what I, you know what I came up with? When, When me and Tammy got saved. Tammy called her grandmother Tammy's so excited. She's still excited to stay, too. So excited about our salvation. She calls her grandmother and tells her, hey, me and Rob got saved. And she says, oh, how wonderful that is. I have been praying for you guys for a long time. Through her faith that could move a mountain, she prayed without doubting. And God answered her prayer the day he brought salvation to our home. Listen, we are all on a mission for God. We are all to have faith in God that can move a mountain. And we are to be praying that his will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. Don't doubt God. Don't doubt him. Yes.